Did I say something about God creating us differently? <laughs> Very good. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians as we continue in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be looking at the first half of this chapter beginning in verse 2. Uh, we jumped ahead a little bit last week as we covered some of Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so we're coming back uh, to the beginning of this chapter. I'm going to be reading uh, from the ESV, the version we um, use regularly here in our worship services but I want to note that I think um, the ESV makes an interpretive decision in translating some of the Greek in this passage uh, and uses the word interchangeably for woman to be, the, be either woman or wife. And while that's an acceptable translation, I think it makes a, 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 um, an interpretive uh, decision here. And I think the context warrants the word being translated in the plainest sense of the word woman throughout. Uh, so where... It is translated wife, as I read through. Uh, I will also make note of that as well. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife or woman is her husband or man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife or woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful, for a wife or woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of man. But woman is the glory, excuse me, the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that is why a wife or woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. <clears throat> Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray together. Father God, we need your Spirit's help. Every time we come to your word, but particularly as we come to this, your word, a difficult passage, but one which you have for our instruction, for our teaching, and for our edification. Lord, I pray that you would guard the words of my mouth, that they would reflect your truth. And Father, we pray again, as we've read and prayed, that you would sow the seed of your word into our hearts and that you would make our hearts good soil 
to receive it that it might yield fruit for your glory and for your kingdom that we might indeed be as your people a light that is not hidden under a bush but that shines brightly with your truth and with your grace. And we give you praise and thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we turn our attention again to this section of Paul's letter where he is beginning to address certain issues that have arisen out of around practices in the gatherings for worship in the church. And the difficulty that we're presented with in some of these passages in this section of the letter, and particularly I think with this passage, is that Paul is writing again to a particular church in a particular place and time to address a particular situation and, and uh, circumstances uh, of which we don't have necessarily a lot of detail. We're hearing, again, only one side of this, this correspondence between Paul and the church. And thus, in some cases, it can be more difficult to discern what elements of Paul's instruction are, are limited to that particular situation and circumstance that's, that he's addressing in the church and what is universally true for the church at all times and all places. And this is always, always a tension when we come to the Word of God because God's Word is universally true and yet there are practical outworkings of the gospel in our lives that necessarily are at times enculturated to, to different tribes and tongues and nations as God's word goes out. And we are always asking the question, how does this, this word spoken to God's people in the past instruct and impact how we think and how we live today? And that tension is obviously felt more acutely in passages like this one this morning where some of the background and details of the situation are really not very clear. And yet it's often these kinds of issues that cause unnecessary division in the church, that, 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 yield, uh, that yields necess- uh, disorder at times. And it's important for us to try to come to some understanding of the principle being taught and how that is lived out practically together in the community of Christ in which we live. Paul begins this section by commending the Corinthians for remembering him and maintaining the traditions that he delivered to them. And already that begs the question, what traditions is Paul referring to here as he goes on in this section to not commend them on several things that they are doing? And likely Paul is... is is once again giving pastoral encouragement to the church there for seeking to follow his example, to, to imitate him as he is imitating Christ, as he's just said in the, in the verse before, verse 1 of this chapter. He wants them to know that he recognizes their faith, he recognizes their, their heart to live for God, even in some matters where they are not doing so very well at it. And yet still there are ongoing matters of tension and disruption that need to be addressed, and one of which is this this issue regarding men and women in the church and heads being covered and uncovered. So I'm going to start by dealing with two obvious facts that are raised in this passage, and then I want uh, then then what I believe are the principles Paul wants us to grasp around this issue. Uh, 
Without going into a lot of detail, a couple of things are obvious from this passage. Paul affirms both men and women praying and prophesying in the worship gathering of the church. That's important for us to know. It's important for us to hear. Because later on in chapter 14, Paul will seem to say the very opposite when he says women should keep silent in the church. Now, Paul is not contradicting himself. But again, he's speaking uh, in, to, to, in context to specific situations. Now, you're going to have to come back in a couple of weeks in order to find out what Paul means in chapter 14. We're not going there today. But here, Paul very clearly acknowledges that not only do men and women pray and prophesy in the, in the corporate gathering of the church, but there is a correct fashion, no pun intended, for doing so. And that's the second thing that's clear here, and that is that in the Corinthian church, and evidently other churches of that time, when praying and prophesying, men were to do so with their heads uncovered, and women were to do so with their heads covered. Now, we don't know exactly what this covering that Paul refers to was, as he makes connections with links of hair and and different things, but most likely he's referring to, to some kind of physical covering, maybe a prayer shawl or a wrap or perhaps a veil of some kind. We can read in the, in the time uh, when Paul was writing this in the culture, there were certain practices that reflected some of this, and even we see that ongoing today in many cultures uh, around the world. So whether or not we think this is still appropriate for for men and women to do today, it's obvious that in the mid-first century Corinth, it was appropriate for a woman to cover her head when praying or prophesying in a church and a man to leave his uncovered. So whatever else Paul is saying here, those are two obvious truths. Men and women were active and involved in the public worship of God, and and, and that participation carried with it some distinctions between genders that are signified by the covering or uncovering of their heads. All clear so far? <laughs> okay, now we get to the, to, uh, uh, the other part. Obvious is, uh, also obvious is that we believe, or I believe, and we believe here in this church, the situation of wearing head coverings or not was the particular cultural expression of a deeper principle which Paul was addressing. Otherwise, we'd have lots of hatted ladies here this morning. You see, Christianity radically challenged and changed the status of women in the eyes of contemporary culture in Paul's day. I mean, you talk about women's liberation. Nothing like the gospel uh, could could actually uh, address the freedom that, that God created for men and for women. The gospel came into a world where women were often treated more like property than persons. And it proclaimed an elevated and equal status. We read earlier, Jesus' earliest followers, his closest confidants, many of them were women. And many of those he ministered to and, and were with him were women whom the rest of society would have looked down and upon as inferior in some way. Jesus' death and resurrection reminds us that there's no difference in terms of equality or value or standing before God between men and women. Both are created in and reflect his image, and both are redeemed by the blood of Christ without distinction. 
And that was certainly good news to the, to the women in Corinth, even as it is for all today. And some in the church were obviously eager to display and demonstrate this new freedom and to exercise their gifts of praying and prophesying in the church. And Paul says that's good. However, while men and women are equal in value, the same in standing and significance before God and one another, they are not the same. Paul makes note that there are still God-given differences between men and women, and there are still acknowledged distinctions in certain ordering and characteristics and roles that are rooted in God's design and purposes, and that are not necessarily matters of right and wrong, but matters of dishonor and excuse me, honor and dishonor. And though these differences and distinctions transcend cultures, They still have appropriate cultural expressions that should not be disregarded or discarded in the name of freedom or liberation or rights of expression. So having your head covered or uncovered in Paul's day was not so much a a moral issue of right or wrong, although it had moral implications, but an issue of honor or dishonor, of doing all that we do out of a glory to God and out of a love and respect for one another. That's been Paul's whole message throughout this letter, and here it remains his concern. We shouldn't reduce this passage into an issue of wearing hats or not, but how do we glorify God? How do we honor and respect one another in the manner that God has created us, in the manner that he calls us, to do and that reflects our union with Christ and with one another. And the issue of covered or uncovered heads is symbolic in Paul's day of doing so. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Throughout history, and again, as I said before, in many cultures, even today, there are issues of fashion or style or behavior that reflect the differences between men and women and that speak to the issue of honor or respect in those differences. Guys, when you're wearing a baseball cap and someone says, let's pray, what do most of us do? You got it. We take it off. We, we remove that distinctive, uh, we, we remove our cap on so our first instinct. Why? Because culturally, to remove the hat is a sign of respect and honor. My grandmother hardly ever left the house without wearing a hat, and I never saw her ever wear pants. Why? Not because she thought doing so was a sin, but it was the way in her time and in her culture that marked a respectable woman, and thus it was a means of glorifying God, of honoring my grandfather, of honoring who she was as a a woman. So head coverings or hairstyles were obviously such a symbol in Greek culture as well. Women wearing a a physical cover or having their hair bound up upon the head in Greek culture were symbols of, of modesty and purity and, yes, in the case of a wife, a commitment to and a respect for her husband. Perhaps some women in the church felt that this newfound freedom in Christ warranted a shedding of these cultural norms that in their eyes might bring that freedom into question. And doing so would have naturally caused distractions in worship service. And and as Paul says here, bring dishonor to God and to others. Likewise, for similar reasons, men were not to cover their heads. 
which would likewise cause dishonor to God. So what is Paul seeking to establish here in the life and the worship of the church that is reflected in this practice of covering or uncovering one's head? Well, first, he wants to remind us that there are gender differences and distinctions that are not just decided by culture, but are divinely created by God. And if they are created by God, then the acknowledgement and the proper expression of those distinctions, which might be determined by culture, is good and can be a blessing for us. In a world where, the, where the, the whole concept of gender is not only being challenged, but, but is seen as something that can be changed, depending on what one feels or imagines themselves to be and expressed in whatever way we personally desire, this truth is, is vital for us to understand and to uphold. To be male and female is part of God's good plan and purpose. Paul, as he does so elsewhere when dealing with the distinctions between women and men and how they relate, he returns to the creation account and God's divinely created order. We often hear that, that these are issues of, that, that came about because of the fall and the sin of man. And Paul goes before that. The struggles we have with those are as a result of the fall. But the actual distinctions and differences go back to God's divinely created order. And the first thing we need to say and affirm in this matter, again, is that God created man, male and female, distinct and different from one another, but both equal in dignity, importance, and both in the image of God. The differences and distinction between men and women is not a matter of inequality or inferiority. Both are created in God's image, and in Christ, both are redeemed as children of God and heirs to his kingdom. And there is an interdependence between the two that's critical to understand and embrace. And that's necessary for, for us both to, to, to truly uh, reflect the glory of God and bring honor to him as well as to live together in love with one another as he created us to. And so Paul clarifies that here in verses 11 and 12 saying, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. And as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. In other words, there's a mutuality, there's a, a complementarity of nature that makes men and women equal before God and that is inherent and important on how we glorify and honor God in our lives together. But while men and women are the same in value and status with each other, again, it doesn't mean we're the same as each other. Equality does not mean equivalency. Men are not women, and women are not men, and nor were they meant to be. And just as there is a divinely created equality of nature as those made in God's image, so there is a divinely created difference in our persons and a divinely ordered distinction in living out those differences that reflects that image and brings glory to God and honor to Him and respect and love to one another. And this is evident in Paul's statement in verse 3. He says right off, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and in marriage, the wife, her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And again, we see this, this distinction being rooted in the character and the nature of God himself. Christ is the head of every man. So far, so good. 
He's the head over all his church, all of mankind. He is our authority. He is the one from whom the, the church exists and to whom we submit ourselves in love and obedience and honor. We can all agree, I think, on that. And then he says, the head of woman is man. And here is where we get our dander up a little bit. We may agree that Christ is the head of man and woman, but in Paul, is Paul now putting man in the place of Christ in relationship to woman? The answer to that is no in the ultimate sense. Christ is the head of all mankind, and man cannot take that place. But in the relationship between men and women, by virtue of God's, God's purposes in creation and his priority and the, ordering, the, the structure and order of that, uh, creates a functional distinction between men and women in terms of their mutual calling and giftings that places man as head over woman in an analogous correspondence to Christ and his church. And that is, that is particularized elsewhere by Paul in terms of what that looks like in marriage over in Ephesians 5 and in, in church leadership over in 1 Timothy. But here... Paul's point is to say there is no shame or sense of inequality or inferiority in that distinction any more than, than, there would be to, than there would be dishonor or inequality in acknowledging that in terms of economic or functional qualities and position, God is the head of Christ. You see, there's no, there, there, there's no inferiority there. But there is an economic distinction. And so what is clear is that this relationship of, of ontological equality and functional authority between God the Father and Son and man and woman and the love that is exist to exist between them excludes any sense of superiority or competitiveness that leads to dishonoring or imposing one's authority in a heavy-handed manner. Such behavior, that kind of behavior, is the product of the fall in our sinful nature. Which is where Paul goes in addressing both men and women. Every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman or wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And adding in the case of a woman, it's kind of like having her head shaved, which he notes and we know from that culture, was a distinct sign of shame and dishonor. And so the whole issue, again, is one of, of honor or dishonor, respect or lack of respect. First, honor and respect for God as we enter into the worship of God and as we participate together in worshiping God. Second, honor and respect for, for uh, men and women or one's husband or wife or other members of the congregation at worship together. And third... Respect for oneself as one who has been created distinctly in the image of God himself. And Paul's saying to seek to break free of certain cultural norms that display and express these distinctions for the sake of exercising our freedom or asserting our rights or even displaying our e equality with one another not only causes contention or can cause contention and confusion, but it can bring dishonor to God, to Christ, and to one another in the body of Christ. And so in dealing specifically with that here as it applies to the women praying and prophesying in the church, 
Paul does not necessarily criticize what they are doing, but how and perhaps why they are doing it. As one commentator notes, his concern is with the assumption that gender equality means gender sameness and gender interchangeability. And he's even more unhappy about their indifference to the principle of honoring and respecting one another in the body of Christ. Particularly as it might distract or dissuade others from glorifying and honoring God in public worship. So, again, in verses 7 through 12, Paul affirms both the difference and the mutuality of men and women as more than just a matter of physical appearance or social construction or convention. He says, God created man, male and female, each in the God's image. He doesn't say that, but that's the foundation which we have here. And he, said, and, 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 and he doesn't say that the woman is the image of man because of that truth. We're both created in the image of God. But also, he says, each were created for the glory of another, man for God and woman for man. Now, again, that doesn't mean women don't glorify God. But here we see the orderness, the, the orderedness of creation and that that's important. I think in some ways this is behind Paul's statement about women having authority on their heads or symbol of authority on their heads because of the angels. I cannot tell you exactly what he means there, and I'm not going to make an attempt to tell you exactly what he means there. But what is true is every order of created beings, including the angels, has its way of showing reverence, showing honor to God, performing the God-given roles that they have been given uh, in, in that order. And so some see in this a reference to the angels, even in Isaiah 6, covering themselves in their, in, in their, with their wings in the presence of God. But whatever the meaning, the gender differentiation that designates our identity as men and women finds different visible, public, and symbolic expressions in different ways of exhibiting honor and respect for God and for one another and for oneself, particularly in worship together. And so traditionally, in many places and parts of the world for many centuries, this has been seen in some form of of head covering for women in worship. And for some, it still has that connotation today. But the point is that we should not cast off or disregard these forms or expressions, whatever they are in our particular cultures or particular places, in the name of of freedom and liberation or in an attempt to blur the differences and distinctions. And to do so is not to honor but to dishonor and thus to bring disrepute upon Christ and his body. And so Paul ends by appealing to their own judgment. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a, man to pray, a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Well, the answer in this particular case is presumably no. But he appeals to nature regarding the, the length of hair for a man and a woman. And, and as again, it's not a commentary on hair length itself. But, he, but he's saying, does the order of how things are, the way God has made things, does that tell you that there, not tell you that there is a difference between men and women and what is honorable and respectful that is reflected in various ways? 
because of our created differences, because of our distinct calling and ordering of roles, because of the customs and proprieties of the time and place in which we live, we have a responsibility to give consideration to, to judge for ourselves how these differences and distinctions are lived out and exercised to the glory of God and honor to one another according to God's word and according to the way and the nature in which he has created things, including us. So how do we apply this? I don't know. (laughs) No, I do know. There's lots of ways we can apply this. There's not one certain way. Certainly, we live in a time and place where the cultural norms that distinguishes the, the differences between men and women have changed and in some cases are even being erased. But one thing is clear from Paul's teaching here is that those distinctions are still real and they are still important. And thus, as men and women who are created in God's image, who are called to a a mutuality and a a complementarity in our lives created together, particularly in the home and in the church, we are to hold firm to acknowledging and embracing those differences and seeking to maintain an honor and respect for God and one another as we live those out in our lives and in our worship, particularly together. This is not so much about what men or women can or cannot do in worship as it is about how it is done together. There are places in Scripture, and even in this letter where Paul, is, is, uh, where Paul lays down some, some more universal restrictions in various roles that may apply, but here it is more about doing things well and for the glory of God. Paul does not want us creating contention or division. For me to stand up here and preach to you on a Sunday morning in a baseball cap might do that. For me to show up here in a dress and preach before you would definitely do that. Likewise, for a woman to come up wearing a man's suit and coat and tie and three-piece suit might not be wrong, but it would certainly create some issues. Walking that tension is not easy. It is not easy, and it becomes especially difficult in our day. And so we need, to, we need to think about those things. We need to wrestle with those things together. We need to recognize the difference in the order in which God has created us as men and women and how we live that out well for his glory and for the honor and respect of one another and in a way that reflects the time and place we live. We also need to recognize and celebrate the different way in which he has created us, male and female, and respect and and embrace his design and order for how those differences impact our honoring him and one another in our worship together, in our marriages together, in our serving together in the body of Christ, to uphold what it means To be a godly man or a godly woman in our culture will serve, especially today, not only as a welcome invitation, but also as a strong witness. And so we need to wrestle with that. We need to judge together in that. And lastly, Paul reminds us that everything we do here in worship matters. That we don't just 
decide we want to go off and do things in our way, but there are traditions, there are ways in which God has called us to gather together as his people and to enter into that worship together as male and female, as brothers and sisters, as those who are part of his family. And so that's why as we, uh, in our Reformed tradition, we talk about the, the regulative principle. We worship as God calls us to worship in his word. Now, how we work that out and what that looks like in, in different services, there may be some judging that goes on in, into what is, how that is exercised in our particular cultures and times and places. But we're not called to just do what we feel like is right or what the culture says is right. So there's a lot bound up in this, in this passage that's more than just about whether to wear a hat or not to church. And it's, in some ways, very foundational to where we are in our world and in our culture today, underlying that. And God would have us as his people, number one, to seek together, to bring glory to him, honor to him in all that we say and do together as his people, and to honor and respect and love one another in a way that reflects God's love for us, his love within the community of the Trinity, and his creating us in his image. May he give us grace and wisdom to do that well. And if you're visiting here with us today, (laughs) I hope you know that ambassador is not about head coverings or not head coverings. But we're about Jesus Christ being central and how we know him and walk with him and live with him together as God's people is what really matters. And his instruction like this for us is where we wrestle with those things and want to see those things lived out well. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have revealed yourself and so much about yourself and who we are and how we are to live in your word, but you have not revealed everything. Because when you enter into our lives, Lord Jesus, when you come and change and transform us, it changes and transforms everything. And so, Father, I pray you'd give us grace to wrestle in those places where your word and how it is applied is is not clear or causes disagreements or even enables us to break fellowship in some way, that you, Lord, would unite us around that which is truly important. And that is knowing you and glorifying you in all that we say or do. And how we live matters. So, Father, give us grace and guidance in that together. And, Lord, where we would take a passage like this and use it to enforce our authority over another or to assert our equality in a way that that seeks to raise us up in some way where the culture perhaps does not, Lord, I pray that you would guard us from that. Because, Father, those things are rooted in our self and not in you. And Lord, thank you for creating us in your image. Thank you for the 
differences you have made in the, in the sexes and the gender creation. And Father, that differences that are lived out well when they are lived according to your plan and purpose and with a design to reflect your glory and your love and your grace and your honor and respect. Father, thank you for your son Jesus who models that perfectly for us as one who though he was in very nature equal to you, submitted himself to you and came to earth and walked in our shoes that we might be redeemed and rescued and reconciled. May that be what drives us, what motivates us to love you and to glorify you and to love one another. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.